John chapter 6, verses 52 through 59. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So how, how awkward is this passage of scripture? <clears throat> I mean, this is one of the most confusing, controversial, highly debated statements that Jesus ever made. And we're actually continuing right now our teaching series through what we're calling the hard sayings of Jesus. Things he said, things that Jesus said that are hard because they're difficult to understand or they're difficult to obey. And actually, the very title of our teaching series comes from this passage of Scripture. The very next verse, verse 60, the disciples straight up say, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Who can hear it? And so, um, why don't we ask the Holy Spirit for help? Uh, as I teach this text, and as we seek to find understanding in it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that, as Brian shared earlier, that your word, it's alive. It's active. It divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the very thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. We need your word for life, for understanding, to know you, and to love you. And so God, would you just, by your spirit, illuminate the words on these pages, the words on the screen. Would you help us to see more clearly Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. So I'm just going to get right into it, okay? Point number one, this text is not talking about communion, <clears throat> all right? It's not directly talking about communion. Uh, let's go ahead and, and read the, the, uh, these few verses. I'm going to actually go back to verse 51. Jesus is saying, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, speaking of himself, he says he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, which is kind of a nickname for Jesus, the Son of Man, and you drink his blood, then you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Now, this sounds like some crazy vampire apocalyptic literature, right? Like, is Jesus going twilight on us? Are his disciples his lost boys? Like, if you think this is a strange slice of scripture, then just know that you are not alone in that. Back in that day, in the day that he spoke these words, the image of eating flesh and drinking blood was not only strange, but it would have been extremely offensive language to his hearers. It was especially offensive to his Jewish followers, which was the majority of his followers at the time, because in the Old Testament Mosaic law, uh, they were prohibited from eating any flesh with any amount of blood in it. You see that again and again in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so it was really offensive uh, for them, this language that Jesus was using. And now today, in this day and age, Roman Catholic theology says that everything that Jesus says in this text is what we would call ordinary literal or plainly literal. And so when Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you have no eternal life, And then when Jesus says later at the Last Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, Roman Catholics believe that the elements of communion, the bread and the wine, supernaturally become the literal body and blood of Jesus. It's not just figurative for them. They believe it's literally Jesus' body right there in your hand. It's literally Jesus' blood there in your hand. So like as a Catholic boy, when I went to CCD classes growing up, this is what I was taught. This is what I was taught. It's called the doctrine of transubstantiation, if you want to like study it more, transubstantiation. Now today, most Protestant, uh, which is kind of a way of saying like non-Catholic theology, believes that that the Bible should be understood literally, so we agree on that. Right? We believe that absolutely the Bible should be understood literally. But we would say that there are two kinds of literal. There's the ordinary literal, which we just talked about, and there's also the figurative literal. And so we would say here in John 6 that Jesus is not speaking in an ordinary literal way, but in a figurative literal way. So just to give you an example... Like, we use both of these, ordinary literal and, and figurative literal, in everyday conversation all the time. Like, if, if I say I'm hungry, that is ordinary literal. It means my stomach is empty, my belly is growling, and I need some pizza or tacos, right? But let's say I came to you and I said, you know, like rolling 101 Dalmatian, I said, like, man, I could eat an elephant. I could eat an elephant. If you were to take that as ordinary literal, you'd be like, really? An elephant? You'd be trying to picture that. Like, can, can he even eat all of that? But it's just a figure of speech, right? Like, we all understand that that's a figure of speech. I'm not out there, like, looking for a grill the size of my house and, like, buckets of sauce to, like, slather on this elephant. No, it's, you understand it's figurative. It's figurative literal. All it means by saying that I could eat an elephant is that my stomach is empty, my belly is growling, and I could use some pizza or tacos, right? Same meaning, but two different ways of saying it to get there. Now, we believe that Jesus is speaking in a figurative, literal way. Otherwise, we would be like re-crucifying Christ every time we take communion when we say, this is his body broken and his blood spilled for you. But just like we sang uh, just a moment ago, no, Jesus paid it all. 
He paid it all. It's done. He said, it is finished. His last words he uttered on the cross. It is finished. And so we, we understand that his work is, is, is finished. That any partaking in communion is not uh, the re-hashing the re, uh, out of Jesus' body being broken and his blood being spilled. Which is just to number two. Like if we do want to understand what this text is saying, we need to look at the context. Context is key. All right, now when we say context is key, many of you know that this is a basic principle in what we call hermeneutics, Bible interpretation. If you're in one of our home groups, you know that uh, I know that a lot of our home groups are studying through passages of the Bible together. Uh, you know that part of the Bible study process, especially when you go to more, some of the more hard parts, uh, is you got to look at the surrounding context, right? And so if you see a paragraph in Scripture that you're seeking to understand, if you want to truly understand it, you gotta, you got to see, like, you know, what's written before this passage, what's written after it, just like any other piece of literature that you're trying to understand. And at the beginning of uh, chapter 6, when you look at the context of this, you see that Jesus is trying to catch a break and get away at the beginning of chapter 6. But these crowds have started to follow him because of all these miracles he's been performing. And at one point, there's a crowd of 5,000, 5,000 that have been following him around. And the disciples... They look around at this great crowd and they start wondering, like, man, these people, they've been sitting here learning from hours at the foot of Jesus, just all spread out on this hill. How are we going to feed them? How are we going to feed them? And one of the disciples points out that one of the little boys present has, a, has five loaves of bread and two fish, and he's willing to share it with the crowd. You guys have heard this one, right? And so Jesus looks at the five Loaves of bread and the two fish, and he says, hey, that'll do. That'll do. And he tells them to pass it around, uh, pass it around, and it says that everyone had their fill and that they had 12 baskets of crumbs and left over. So this small boy offers his lunchbox, his mom packed for him. Jesus produces enough food to fill a Costco and one Bag, this one bag feeds thousands and thousands of people, and they still have 12 basketfuls left over. And what happens next? What happens next is that just the buzz is in the air. It says everyone is excited. They, they see this miracle performed. They're all like nudging each other, talking to each other about this. They're saying, like, This is our guy. This is the Messiah that we've been looking forward to, to coming. He's the one we've waited for. Let's follow him. Let's follow him. Let's, let's follow him and overthrow the empire together. You see, because the people at the time, they believed that the kind of deliverance and redemption that Jesus came to bring was a military one. Because God's people, the Jewish people at the time, that they considered uh, themselves to be uh, lower class, oppressed, uh, unheard, not a lot of opportunities available to them. And they're thinking like, man, we're God's people. We're like the old covenant people, Yahweh. We, we know him. He, we belong to him. 
And Yahweh has promised a redeemer to save us. And so they just anticipated that Jesus was this, this kind of leader, uh, this Messiah who would help them overthrow the empire. And then in John 6, verse 15, it says that Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. They wanted to rally, him, rally around him, crown him as king, and say, hey, let's do this. Let's, let's go bring those Romans down. And so Jesus, he snuck away. He snuck away. And then it says later, the crowd finds him again, and they ask. They're like, hey, Jesus, why, why did you leave us? Why did you leave us? And he says, I left because you're not really interested in me. You're not really interested in me. The only reason that you're following me around, the only reason you're excited about me is because you see the miracles, because you taste the bread. You don't really want me. You just want to use me. And then he goes on about how he's the bread of life. And so see, that's what's happening all leading up to this conversation about eating the flesh and drinking the blood. That's the context that we have leading up before. And then later on, right after our main passage, again, you want to look at what happens before and what, you want to, what happens after. Right after our passage, Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you about how he's the bread of life, he says, are spirit and life. In other words, here's the point. Jesus is comparing a spiritual truth with a physical reality. We need Jesus for eternal spiritual life in the same way that we need food and drink for our physical lives. All right, we need Jesus for eternal spiritual life in the same way that we need food and drink for our physical lives. So here's that, this leads us into point number three. We tend to get excited over the wrong bread. We get excited over the wrong, let's call it spiritual food. Verse 26, it says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, hey, look, guys, can we be real? You're not here because you're really interested in me. You're only here because of what I can do for you. You see, this crowd saw Jesus do all kinds of miracles. They heard him teach things with all sorts of authority. They probably heard who he claimed to be, but what made them want to crown him as king was this miracle bread that they just tasted. Their excitement was in the thinking that Jesus could take their hunger away. Not that he could take their sins away. You see, we've got, you just flip on the TV to like these Christian networks You've got these televangelists on TV that will say things like, hey, man, Jesus wants to give you this. He wants to do this for you. He wants to heal you from that. But Jesus says, no, look, it's not about the things that I provide. I'm the bread of life. I'm the stuff that nourishes you. 
Look down in, in, in John chapter 6. It says, Jesus said to them, he says, I am the bread of life. This is verse 35. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who, who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him or her up on the last day. When Jesus says that he is the bread of life. What he's saying is, you will always be spiritually hungry until you find your ultimate satisfaction in me. All throughout the book of John and, and, and really throughout all the gospels in the New Testament, Jesus speaks really highly of himself. He uses all these I am statements. This is just the first one in the gospel of John where he says, I am the bread of life. He's saying, look, I am it. You can learn from other prophets. You can sit under other teachers, but they will never compare to me. Which I know I, I, when it first hits you, it kind of sounds arrogant, right? Sounds pretty arrogant. But we can't apply human rules and assessments to God. You can't apply creaturely rules to the creator. For example, like my kids, they get in trouble when they boss each other around. But you know who's allowed to boss them around? This guy. Right? They don't get to define what they can and can't do in our home, but I can. I can as the father in the home. You see, because God is the creator, and everything else and everyone else is creation, because God is the creator, he is the gold standard of all that we consider good, true, and beautiful. And so the most loving thing that he can do is actually to set himself as the highest, as the most valuable, as the most beautiful, to declare that, and to call us to see that and to savor that is the most loving thing he can do. Otherwise, we will spend our lives looking to created things for fulfillment. It's a fulfillment that will never last. Never scratch that itch. The most loving thing Jesus can do is draw us to himself. That's why he calls himself the bread of life. Jesus is saying, look, on the thing that you hunger for the most, on the thing that your soul thirsts for. This is not just bread that your body needs, but it's bread that satisfies your soul, the bread of life. We find ourselves feasting at the wrong table again and again, nibbling at the wrong bread again and again. Some of you may have heard this classic quote from the great C.S. Lewis when he wrote, 
that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus is saying, like, look, you don't, you don't realize that what you truly hunger for, what you hunger for deep down, that itch that you can never seem to scratch, that restlessness that you, you always feel, every time you look out at the world or you look down into yourself and, and think, man, something's not right. Something's askew. This is not how things should be. Jesus is saying, I'm the answer to that. You're getting excited over the wrong bread. This is where the bread of life is at. Which leads us to point number four. That Jesus is the true bread that we need. Jesus is the true bread that we need. You see, at one point in this text, when the tension begins to rise, the people in the crowd, they start asking Jesus, hey, what do we need to do? What work is required in order to get this bread of life that you speak of? They still don't understand what he's talking about. They say, like, hey, what, what, do we, what is it that we need to do in order to earn this bread of life? And Jesus says in verse 29, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You've got to believe in the one that the Father sent. After hearing this response, the crowd, the people in the crowd, they're still scratching their heads. And so they challenge Jesus. And they say to him in verse 30, so then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see, they were referring to the story about what Moses, when he led God's people out of Egypt, and they were wandering in the wilderness, and they found this place where they were hungry, where they were thirsty. And they pray, Moses intercedes on the half of the people, and God sends down this like, Magical bread from heaven, this manna from heaven. And so this is that what they're referring to here. They're saying, hey, look, what sign can you show us that says that like you, what you're saying is true? How, how can you prove that we should believe you? What can you perform that will make us trust you? They're like, you know, Moses, he did, he did this thing out in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. What are you going to do for us? And Jesus' response <clears throat> He says, no, look, Moses didn't give you, didn't give your, your ancestors the bread in the desert. God the Father did. It wasn't about Moses and what he could do. It was about God providing for the people. And just like he did back then, just like God provided bread for his people back then, he's providing true bread, lasting bread from heaven right now. And Jesus is referring to himself. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, the people, they're confused when he's saying this. They find his language offensive. They're missing the point. And it's with all that confusion going around, 
Jesus deals his, his final blow, his final point. He says in verse 33, or 53 rather, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, which whenever you see that, it's like Jesus saying like, man, true, like I, I need you to get this. Like, don't miss this truth. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And it's right after these verses. It's right at this point that a lot of people in the crowd are like, all right, I'm out. I don't like what he's saying. It's too strange. It's too weird. It sounds like too much. And all of a sudden, this, this, this crowd who was excited about, you know, the Jesus for King campaign, the let's make the kingdom great again campaign, like it just dissolves, fades away. The crowd fades away. They just bail. You see, some of them, some of them, they didn't get it because their hearts were hardened against the Spirit of God who could help them understand. But some wanted Jesus to be a different kind of Savior than he was, like we mentioned a moment ago. What they didn't understand is that Jesus is not here to meet our felt needs. That's not why he primarily came. That's not the kind of Savior he came to be. He's not here to meet our felt needs. He's here to be your Lord, to reshape the reality around you or to reshape your entire reality around what is truly good, what is truly beautiful. Jesus wants total commitment. He wants our lives. He's not just glad that we show up every now and then and, 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 and then while, while thinking, hey, maybe, maybe I'll get something out of church today. He's not glad that we come to, to church with this consumer mentality. No, Jesus wants you to know, look, I'm that thing that you're looking for. I'm that thing. I'm it. All of those things that you look for, all of those things that you are searching for, they all point to me. You'll only be satisfied if you truly feast on and rest in me. You see, Jesus turns our idea of where true power comes from on, completely on its head. We, we, we look at like big crowds, lots of programs, lots of resources, and we think, man, God must be at work there. God must be at work there. But Jesus says, look, that's not what I'm here for. I want you to come to me completely. And if you're not going to do that, it's better that you just leave. I don't need the crowd. I don't need the crowd. And so a lot of them, they end up leaving. Elsewhere, Jesus, in, in the Gospels, Jesus looks at the great crowds and he says, hey, look, if you're not willing to choose me over your family, if that's what it comes to, if you're not willing to choose me over your family to, by comparison to how much you love me to the point where you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, even like your children or your own life, if your family is going to get in between you following me, then man, don't even bother following me anymore. He says that in Luke 14. See, Jesus, 
is not interested in partial commitment. He's not interested in compartmentalized surrender. That's why he says things like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That is his way of saying, my life is a life that needs to be brought in to all of who you are. My life needs to be brought in and made a part of you. It needs to be digested. It needs, it needs to be part of every fiber of your being. I mean, think, like, when you, when you eat, like, a piece of Sarah Metcalf's jalapeno cheddar, cheddar sourdough bread, which if you haven't done that, like, you need to repent and get on that train. If you've had one of that sourdough bread, you know, like, the energy and the carbs of the food that you're, you're eating is released and it starts to circulate, right? And, and, and it, 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 it fuels you. Anytime you eat bread, it, those carbs and energy, it turns into fuel for you. And if you don't use that fuel, you get, you know, you crash, you're, you're, you're tired. But it influences you, it fuels you. And Jesus is saying, look, I don't care what you want me to be for you. I don't care what you want me to be for you. This is who I am. I am the bread of life. And it's better than you could have ever hoped for. Who I actually am. The way I actually satisfy you. Not your physical hunger, but your spiritual hunger. Where you really need to be satisfied. It's so much better than what you thought I was for you. Maybe a question you can ask yourself right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, Again, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this particularly applies to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, does your Christianity display this level of wholehearted commitment? Does your Christianity display this wholehearted commitment? You see, a lot of people, they come to Jesus. They come to him because they, they want him to add something to their lives that they already have, that they're kind of already enjoying, the things that they're already like uh, controlled by, invested in, and they're thinking, you know, like, hey, maybe something in my life is missing and Jesus is, is that thing, right? But the gospel is not a matter of addition. The gospel is not something that you add onto your life. No, it's not addition. It's explosive. It changes everything. It doesn't add something to you. It redefines everything altogether. It gives us a whole new view of reality, a whole new worldview, a whole new philosophy of life, a whole new approach to living. It changes everything. Jesus is saying, look, merely adding me to your life, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can't use him as seasoning to make the rest of your life feel better. No, it's about feasting on him. It's about eating his flesh, his body broken for you, drinking his blood, his blood spilt for you. It's where you get to this point to where you say, no, Jesus, you are it. You are all that I need. All I want is you. To the point where you're just all consumed with him. 
The Christian life, it's, it's not supposed to be Jesus plus family, plus comfort, or plus safety, or Jesus plus money, plus middle class suburbia, or Jesus plus relationships. No, it's supposed to be Jesus plus nothing is everything for me. Everything. All I need is him. All I truly want is him. Man, he gives me a family, comfort, safety, resources. I'm going to be grateful for those things as blessings from on high. I don't truly need those things. If I have Jesus, I have everything that I need. leads us to our final point. Number five, eating and drinking in this passage is speaking about believing. Eating and drinking is about believing. So how do we feast on the bread of life? How do we digest it? How do we give Jesus our all like we've been talking about? We do that simply by believing. By believing. This is, this is the scandal of the gospel. Is that so many of us, we, we think that, man, in order to get in, in, in good relations with the Lord, we got to work our way up to him. We got to impress him. We got to do good things. No, the gospel takes that whole mentality and turns it on its head. It says, it says like, no, there's nothing that you could do. There's nothing that you could do because you'll never be good enough. He's too holy and you're too sinful. And so it's only by his grace, it's only through Christ's life, death, and resurrection that you can get in on this. And so it starts by believing in that and everything else follows. How do we know that? The clues are actually in this chapter. At one point, when the crowd asks, hey, how, does you, how, how, does, um, <clears throat> how do we work for the food that gives eternal life? Verse 27, Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which, is the, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, but what must we do? To be doing the works of God. And Jesus answered them, this, this thing that you want to do, it's not your work. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom you have sent. A few verses down in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, which is a way of saying, hey, like if you repent and believe and come to me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then down in verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, Jesus says, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And did you catch that? You see, the key, the key to eternal life, the key to the good life that we all long for and search for, the key to eternal life, do you see what it is? 
Do you see what satisfies the hunger of the soul? Jesus, on the one hand, says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And in the same line of teaching, he says, whoever believes has eternal life. What that tells us is that in this text, in this teaching to his disciples, eating and drinking was about believing in the gospel. Jesus is saying, eternal life is promised not to those who eat and drink for, from his broken body physically, but to those who believe in the spiritual reality of why his body was broken and his blood was spilt in the first place. You see, eternal life, the life that satisfies, the life we long for, is promised not to those who eat and drink from his broken body physically, but to those who believe in the spiritual reality of why his body was broken and blood spilled in the first place. Why was his body broken and his blood spilled? To pay the full penalty of our sins on the cross where he absorbed the righteous wrath of God in our place. He took on our unrighteousness and he freely gives us his righteousness. That's the gospel. Do you believe in this gospel? Do you believe in this gospel? And I think some of us, when, when, we, when we hear a question like that, we're like, yeah, like, of course I do. But do you believe in it to the point that you feast on it? Do you leave, believe in it to the point where you are constantly digesting it? Do you believe that Jesus is what your heart and soul have always been searching for? That he is the answer to everything wrong in our world. That is what it means to say that he is the bread of life. But I think it's fascinating how John, the author of the Gospel of John, how he ends this section, chapter 6, by pointing to the story of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Of Jesus. I want you to look at this with me in verse 66 to 71. It says, After this, after this dialogue, many of his disciples they turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, his original twelve disciples, He says, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And John adds his commentary and he says, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why does John mention Judas Iscariot here at the end of John 6 
when in John's narration, he, Judas wouldn't betray Jesus for several more chapters. That betrayal wouldn't come until much later. I think the reason this is included here in John 6 is because to point out just the absurdity of how Judas betrayed Jesus, he would eventually betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Which if you translate that, that's at the most just a few hundred bucks of U.S. dollars, depending on, on, on what pieces of silver, on what exact coins are being talked of there. At most, just a few hundred bucks. You see, right after, John tells us that right after Judas betrayed Jesus, right after he, he received those pieces of silver from those who sought to arrest and beat Jesus and send him to die. Right after Judas receives this 30 pieces of silver, he looks down at his earnings, and we're told that he's just overcome with guilt. It's almost like he recognizes, I traded the God-man for this? I traded the bread of life for this? And he's just overcome with guilt. And, and, and we're told that he chucks the silver in the temple and he runs away crying, oh, just as if to say, what did I do? What the heck did I do? You see, this, this, this kind of thing is the thing that, it, it keeps me up at night. That there are some of us, there are some of us that provided the right opportunity would quickly trade Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver. Man, is there something that you want so bad that you'll, you'll get caught holding that bag of silver and will find yourself saying, man, I traded Jesus for this? I thought this would make me happy? I thought this would satisfy me? Man, there's some of us, some of us that will give lip service to God, but there are areas of our lives where we would quickly trade Jesus for other things. See, the answer to that, the remedy for that betrayal, that rebellion in our heart, is just believe upon the gospel. Believe upon the gospel. The answer is to run to the Lord Jesus, the truly good and satisfying one, the bread of life, the only one who satisfies in a true and lasting way. As we close, I want to go Old Testament and read just these two verses from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2, verses 12 through 13. It says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me in the fountain of living waters. And two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
What God is saying through Jeremiah is, look, anytime you look anywhere else other than the one true and living God for satisfaction, anytime you turn anywhere else, it's like trying to, trying to, to cup water with your hands. You can't do it. It's going to slowly drip through. Or it's like trying to, to, to create these cisterns to hold water for you. But those cisterns are broken. You'll keep filling them up, and it'll keep falling out the bottom. You'll keep filling them up, and they'll keep falling out the bottom. Then you're going to fill it up again, and it's going to fall out the bottom. And we have the fountain of living water, the bread of life, the one who satisfies in the truest of ways in the most enduring of ways. And we have forsaken him for broken cisterns? Jeremiah says the heavens are appalled at this. They get appalled at this. Man, are you appalled that anyone would choose empty idols over the one true and living God? It should. It should appall you. Our creator, he came down in the middle of our rebellion to give us the son. And the fact that through that son, through the son of God, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, through the son, I can have a relationship with the creator who made me. Man, man, everything else pales in comparison to that. Look, I love my wife. I love my kids. I watched this new movie on Netflix uh, last night with the kids. Um, you, I don't know if you can tell I'm getting over a cold right now. That's why I brought my sexy voice to church. But <clears throat> yesterday we were watching this new, new movie on Netflix called uh, um, The Mitchells and the, and the Machines or something like that. Uh, and um, man, I just lost it. Why didn't I mention that? Um, oh, like, there's just this really sweet story, but this, this, this dad-daughter relationship in the story. Like, they're not getting along. Like, she's a teenager. She's going away to college, and they're not getting along. And they're like, their relationship just goes up and down and up and down. And anyways, uh, like, I found myself, like, trying to hold back tears as I'm thinking about it. Because my daughter's, like, six years old. I'm like, man, I don't know what it's like to have a teenager who, like, questions you at every moment yet because right now I'm, like, my daughter's hero. And so, like, I, I was thinking about this and just, like, all the changes she was going to go through uh, as, as she matures over the years and just the thought of, like, man, she's going to go away to college one day. And, I like, I was just, like, all tearing up. And, and I just realized, like, the reason that I was tearing up is because, uh, like, I love my kids so much. I just found myself sitting there being so thankful to God for just blessing me with this family, with my, my wife and my kids. But you know, as wonderful as they are, my wife, my kids, they don't hold a candle to Jesus. They don't hold a candle to Jesus. That doesn't even compare I mean, my heart overflows with love for my family. But even still, the love that I have for them 
how satisfying, uh, uh, how satisfied I feel with, with time with my family pales in comparison to the fountain of living waters, the one true and living God. Jesus says this eternal life thing that you want, this good life that you're longing for, look, it's, it's not going to work if you just dabble with me. If you're dabbling in your faith, maybe like, look, maybe you've tasted this Jesus thing. But what he's inviting us to this afternoon is not to, not to taste test the gospel, but to feast on it. Have you eaten his flesh? Have you drank of his blood? Have you made the gospel a part of every fiber of your being. That's what it means to eat and drink on him. So just three things I want you to walk away with. Practically, what do we do with a passage like this? Number one, feast on the gospel. Feast on the gospel. We're, we're told that the word of God is like that bread. This, this, this book, this, this word, every page, every paragraph, every verse points to the good news we have in Jesus. It's the most valuable thing that you could ever have. It's funny, I just found a dollar in my Bible. I have no idea how it got there. But it's more even valuable than, than money and gold. Feast on it. Like Brian was saying earlier. Number two. Digest it. Digest it. That's our way of saying, look, let's just meditate on this gospel. Don't just feast on it in one particular time of your day. But let your feasting turn into digesting it. Rehearse it. Pray it. Meditate on it. And lastly, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. And I'm talking specifically about remembering the gospel with the church family through the ordinance of communion. Now I said, our first point, that this text is not primarily about communion, and that's true. But the same thing that this text in John 6 points to is the same thing that communion points to. Jesus told us, this is how I want you to remember me. Eat of the bread, which is my flesh. Drink from the cup, which is my blood. He said, this is how I want you to remember me. And so in a moment, we're going to take communion together as a church family. I want to invite you to feast on, digest, the gospel, and enjoy the grace that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.